Welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast, where I'm today interviewing Peter Leon. Peter Leon is an attorney based in Johannesburg. He is a partner in the Africa Chair at the global law firm Habit Smith Freehills. Peter, welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila. Good to be with you again. Sure. So I thought that you might give us uh, a legal perspective on this whole notion of transparency as relates to governance. Let's start at the top. I mean, is transparency and business ethics, are these issues legal instruments for governance and how do they help governance? Well, I mean, it's a really important question, Sheila. I mean, I think the transparency and accountability and in the sense responsiveness are all the key ingredients for good governance in any country uh, and in any company, frankly. It applies to companies, it applies to countries. Um, why do I say that? Um, because there are both legal uh, issues around transparency and accountability, and but there are also ethical issues around that in in an ESG, uh, in environmental, social, and governance era, which we're obviously now in. Uh, and you know, on the legal side, you now have um, changes the law in the UK where I'm partly based now, um, where the government was, was such a fuss, rightly so, over the beneficial ownership of uh, private companies which own properties in London. The government passed the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act, which is now in force, where, where the, that beneficial ownership has to be disclosed. Um, and in the US, you have the Corporate Transparency Act, which was passed in 2021. Unfortunately, um, as a result of decision by the Court of Justice, the European Union, recent decision, uh, rather bizarrely finding that that breached uh, people or individuals' rights to privacy uh, and their private life and, and personal information, the Court of Justice actually annulled uh, some aspects of the anti-money laundering directive in the European Union, which is a rather bizarre decision. We have to see how that now plays out. But anyway, the point is, there's a long way around to your question. Um, you can see in the developed world, uh, in the West anyway, uh, huge uh, pressures around uh, transparency and making you know making people account for it and 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 putting the legal into the legal regime so i think it's it, it, the name of the game is really changing mm. so uh, i'm mindful that being a lawyer this terminology and concepts come naturally but i need you to help the sheila community podcast followers first what do we mean by beneficial ownership and why uh, does it matter in the space of transparency in the corporate world so let me explain that. Well, what I mean by beneficial ownership is who is the ultimate owner of the company? Because very often, I just take the common garden example uh, around the world or in any system that follows English common law, uh, you will have a company uh, typically owned offshore, maybe in the Isle of Man or Guernsey or in the British Virgin Islands. But it would be very difficult to trace the ultimate owner of that company because there might be a trust interposed between various between that company and the offshore company and, and the ultimate company uh, and nobody would know who actually is the beneficial 
owner of the company through the trust. That's that's what I mean by that. So what what this legislation is trying to get at is who is the mastermind or the controlling influence behind the company in question. And that's really important because, uh, you know, without that information, you, you, you're you basically nowhere. And it's very easy. And one's seen this with, you know, issues in relation to Russia in the West, uh, how it's it's easy to hide um, the ultimate ownership of, of, of a private company. So that's really what this is aimed at, promoting mm. transparency. That's the name of the game. Absolutely. Now, you made mention of the developed world. By that, I, I understand you to say we have this movement in mm. the United States, uh, the UK, Europe, albeit with some uh, mm. legal disagreement mm. Uh, mm. to use the law to promote transparency. What do we know about the other regions of the world and very specifically Africa? Well, I think the pressures are coming there as well, uh, Sheila. Uh, if you look at South Africa, which is, you know, by African standards, a fairly, with all of, despite all the problems with the government at the moment and Eskom and everything else, is certainly the capital market perspective quite developed. If you look at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, and there, um, the JSE has now, although they're not binding, um, the JSE is now. Uh, proposed or actually imposed guidelines on sustainability disclosure and climate-related disclosure. And, and that does require companies to, to disclose sustainability-related sustainability risks and opportunities that affect the company's financial performance, as well as information about the organization or the company's impacts on people, the environment, and the economy. So in a sense, it's um, a double materiality standard, but the problem is that at the moment uh, these disclosure requirements are not uh, mandatory. They 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 are, they essentially are voluntary. So that is an issue. Um, but I mean, it's it, you know, it ultimately I think it will become mandatory. I'm sure it will. I think that's the intention. So that that's certainly a step in the right direction. Um, I certainly know in South Africa, um, changes the company law and so on. I mean, the remuneration directors now in the in the old, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was was never disclosed publicly. Now that information has to be disclosed annually by the companies as to you know exactly what everybody earns. That's another feature of transparency and good corporate governance. So I, I think certainly in South Africa there are moves in that direction. We'll we'll come to I'm sure we'll come to some of the issues in relation to South Africa where we've seen recently where the government um, tried to, and I'm sure you've been following this, tried to exclude ESCOM and Transnet, two very important um, state-owned utilities, from um, some of the financial disclosure requirements under the Public Finance Management Act. And that notice in relation to ESCOM was hurriedly withdrawn when it was attacked uh, by the trade unions um, and even some of the ANC's alliance partners. Uh, uh, but the government's now said that they're looking at reinstating it in another form. I mean, I think that's a very regressive, if that were to happen, uh, i.e. to go ahead in the way the government intended or the Minister of Finance intended, I think that would be a very regressive step. Uh, but the fact that there was the outcry and then, then the government revoked the notice 
it, it, you know, shows the um, impact that, that these sorts of public pressures can have on a government. Mm. I mean, two things. Um, on the one hand, we acknowledge uh, that the South African uh, economy and the markets, financial and otherwise, are fairly sophisticated. Mm. How do we explain that in the face of ESGs, the call for governance and transparency, two of the largest state-owned entities would seek to be exempt from public scrutiny? Well, it's it's absolutely frankly, it's it's a very good question. It, it frankly, it, I'm not the right person to answer it, but it's 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 absolutely astonishing. I mean, it's a question to be put to the government. I mean, what were they thinking? Because if they were thinking that uh, excluding ESCOM uh, from from uh, financial disclosures would somehow help the company's creditworthiness, where everybody knows and all the bondholders know the company's ESCOM is effectively bankrupt and is reliant on state guarantees to keep going its bonds i mean guaranteeing it's the the, the credibility of its bonds um I, I i don't know where the government were coming from i mean the the other concern is obviously in relation to transnet because that's obviously that's the state-owned uh transport utility which owns the rail and harbor network in south africa uh which are still in state hands although very badly run um that notice, as far as I know, has not been withdrawn. And again, I have no idea what the government was thinking or what the Minister of Finance was thinking, because, you know, the Transnet also issues bonds which are publicly traded. Uh, and um, the fact you're trying to hide that sort of information won't be lost on the bondholders. So, I mean, I just think it's incredibly naive. And whoever, whoever, whoever was advising the government was very ill-advised and the government was very ill-advised to accept that advice. Um, it is very concerning, uh, and it doesn't say much about the company's management. So, I mean, in the mineral oil and gas and then energy yeah. space, of course, uh, state-owned ent entities uh, loom large, not just in Africa, to be fair, mm. anywhere mm. else in the world. Mm. I mean, you know, uh, to the extent that we have governments that might use the power of uh, executive and legislative institutions to circumvent some of the more basic um, mm. transparency, governance, and public scrutiny laws. What is left in the absence of that that would help us govern state-owned entities better? What would make, what, what, it's just me understand that better. What would make state-owned entities be governed better? Yes, in other words, if we if we cannot use the conventional instruments, which is that they account and they're held to the same standard, if not higher, if we start to think we can exempt them, what other modalities would we be left with to hold them to account in your view? Well, it's a very good question. I, you know, you, you, you have to have those legislative instruments. I mean, the fact that, that, that there was so much public pressure about the the ESKIM uh, disclosure requirements, I think, is is a is a positive step because the government basically, effectively, had to backtrack. But I mean, if you look at other countries. I'm now going back to countries you know more in the West. Um, you look at countries like Sweden, um, for example. They're they're very stringent disclosure requirements for state-owned companies in that country. And as you know, um, in Norway, uh, Equinor. Uh, 
um, is 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 partly state owned, the the oil company, um, uh, and there are very you know clear requirements about on, on, on around its disclosure disclosure requirements. Um, so I mean you know I I think that my view is that in terms of state owned enterprises, and obviously you're referring to the oil industry. Uh, national oil companies are generally state-owned um, in in countries which have oil. Not all, not not in all cases. Certainly not in the U.S., but in certainly in the less developed world, in the Middle East, and so on, they are largely state-owned. Uh, and in Africa, obviously, in Nigeria and countries like that, um, I, I think you need to have even higher levels of accountability and transparency around them because they they're dealing with public wealth effectively um and it's very if you don't have those requirements it's very easy for those resources to be stolen or misappropriated which frankly has been a, a serious problem uh, certainly in in the hydrocarbon industry as you well know Sheila in in West Africa where I mean there are continual issues uh in Nigeria uh in relation to the state-owned oil company yeah it is true uh, I'm wondering, you know, I'm mindful that uh, the U.S. and New York Stock Exchange has recently uh, indicated requirements for listed companies to report on ESG. Uh, mm. Is this a good thing for transparency or is it just another onerous administrative burden that will not necessarily move the needle? No, I think it's. I think it is very important, and I. I. I think you know. I mean, I. I. have seen a complete. You know, my career as a resources lawyer over the last twenty odd years. I mean, I've seen a complete sea change around this. I mean, the, the, I. I really think. I mean, a lot of people think. Not a lot of people. A number of people think. Certainly on the right, that ESG is a bit of a fad, and you know, will eventually, burn out and go away. I. I don't think so. I. I think that. Uh, if you look at certainly the work going on in the European Union at the moment around critical raw materials, the critical raw materials legislation, um, the EU due diligence legislation, I mean, it, the, the whole world is effectively changing. And I think that the, the problem around ESG at the moment for, my, for, for any company in the resources space is the lack of uniformity um around what they need to report and i think that is an issue and there i have a lot of sympathy for the companies because what you have at the moment are plethora of voluntary standards i mean sometimes they've been you know changed where where the company's listed on a particular exchange like the london stock exchange um there is now a uh, reporting requirement around governance in terms of climate related risks and opportunities how these have to be managed and assessed, and um, the metrics to measure a climate change. Um, but th these really only address the issue of climate change and not the impact of um, those the activities on climate and sustainability. So, uh, you know, th that is an issue. But I, I think the real issue around ESG is the lack of uniformity on the various standards that now exist. And I, I obviously there now moves in the direction of trying to create some sort of uniformity around that because you can't have a situation where a company has to comply with a plethora of standards 
uh, none of which are mandatory. Uh, right. And, and that, that, I think, is a difficulty. No, you are right about that. The lack of consistency in standards is, is an issue. I mean, so we know that many of the big uh, oil, gas, and mining companies are listed in uh, stock exchanges, mainly uh, in the global north, mm. uh, but some in Asia and other places like Australia. Mm. To the extent that we request and require uh, ESG reporting from listed companies only, how effective is it to the overall governance of the sector? What of small privately owned? What of other uh, entities in the mineral oil and gas value chain that are not listed? Well, that that is an issue. So, I mean, because essentially you've got two sets of standards. You've got the standards which will apply to a listed company in in the developed world, and then the standards simply don't apply when the company's not listed, and there's no mandatory no no, no mandatory reporting requirements. Uh, that is an issue. I suppose the only way that can really be addressed is through uh, international financial accounting standards, where I think eventually that will come in. But it may only it may only be limited to climate change issues. It may not address. I think that's that's the problem. It may not address ESG in the round. I think that is the issue. Sure. So, I mean, we've talked about transparency uh, in general, beneficial ownership, and now ESG reporting. Hmm. In your observation and, and in the final analysis, how effective do you think these uh, initiatives are in improving governance? Well, I think they can be because, I mean, don't forget these um, ESG reporting, by and large, is dealing with non-financial metrics. Uh, and, and they don't really address the financial met metrics, which would be um, addressed in the in the company's accounts uh, and in any tax, you know, disclosures the company would make. Uh, but I I think that I mean, the, you know, there's certainly are now moves that the, there are things like the Global Reporting Initiative, um, which is now setting standards for the reporting of tax, governance, control, and risk management. Um, and well as moves around disclosures of profits, uh, employees and taxes on a per country basis. I think you're seeing some moves on on, on that front. Um, and, um, you know, certainly on the um, coming back to state-owned enterprises, there's the OECD transparency and disclosure practices of state-owned enterprise enterprises and their owners. So, I mean, I, I think, I, I do think the world is changing very very rapidly and I, I i think we're on a completely new journey around esg i certainly don't buy the argument this is just something driven by uh, a fad and a movement in california around sort of responsible ownership i i just see all the moves in europe the uk the us around this and that that has an effect ultimately will have an effect globally because I mean, we live in a we live in a completely interconnected world, and it's very very difficult unless you want to be like North Korea uh, to um, you isolate yourself from it and create a sort of autarkic economy. I, I just think we're in a we're in a very different era uh, in 2023 from what we were even 10 years ago. No, that's true. The, the thing of it is this: that uh, my observation is that you are right. 
we will never go back to where we were. That's that's an absolute certainty. We we are setting a new set of ethos in terms of business and how we conduct business, whether it's in this physical or social environment. Uh, but that doesn't mean we will be stuck in the ESG space and the way we see it today. Uh, my guess is that from this, a plethora of laws, policies, systems will come. We will test them. Uh, and then, as with anything, we will find some loopholes, and then we'll move to the next phase. But but the, the benchmark is rising all the time, is what I see. And, and we are never going to go to a stage where we can simply, uh, you know, rest on our laurels. Uh, you know, I want to ask you something about your second home, South Africa. Um, mm. you, your government has been engaging in uh, negotiations for financing clean energy and transition yeah. packages. You know, how important as we do this uh, is the notion of transparency and public scrutiny? It's It's absolutely critical. And frankly, I mean, my my concern about that, I mean, this has been a sort of landmark. I mean, I give credit where it's due. Uh, achievement of um, the Ramaphosa administration. They don't have too many. This is one of them. That this just energy transition that they've agreed effectively with with the West, who are going to help uh, finance it. Obviously, the money needs to, the eight point five billion odd dollars needs to be financed. It'll be done on a, as I understand, on a fairly concessional basis but the problem in South Africa at the moment Sheila is that um, you have a situation where the country now has uh, a new electricity minister can one believe that uh, Ramakhopa who is now saying uh, contrary, completely contrary to what the government has negotiated that they need to find a way of extending the life of the Eskom coal mines, when the whole idea behind the just energy transition was to decommission uh, the older ones uh, and move to uh, <laughs> to a non-carbon based future. Uh, so, I, 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 so it seems to me the government is talking opposite ends of 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 its mouth at the moment because you can't have the just energy transition financing going on through the presidential climate change commission uh and all the work the treasury have done around that um negotiating with foreign lenders and governments uh, and then have the new electricity minister who's been in office i think two months uh saying you need to extend the life of the eskom coal mines it, it just doesn't it, it, it's extraordinary yeah. I, I simply don't understand what's going on but i mean to, your, to answer your question Obviously, uh, with with that, there there has to be very extensive scrutiny of what the government is agreeing to uh, and um, what the terms are and the rest of it. Um, I mean, South Africa does actually have, and it was it's been put in place for twenty odd years. It does actually have a very good public finance management act, which would hold its own anywhere in the world. The problem in South Africa is that the act is simply not enforced properly uh and when it's not complied with the consequences seem to be minimal for the officials concerned that's been a a problem from day one and that's always comes out um i know i'm digressing it always comes out in the reports of the public accounts committee and the auditor general and they both go on about it nothing seems to happen yeah well that's a major tragedy because from my work with the world bank and the adb one of the things i have learned is that actually 
many of the uh, developing nation countries have a lot of very robust laws. Uh, mm. And that it isn't the absence of laws uh, that is uh, undermining capacity. Uh, it seems to me that it is one, the absence of political will to mm. apply those laws. And two, very often in some countries, particularly because of uh, brain drainage, the people just aren't there uh, to be yeah. able to enforce. And yeah. those that are left mm. tend to quite tragically be ill-qualified, uh, mm. very timid, never speaking truth to power. And so mm. the result of which is that this instrument of the law, which is their source of power, mm. their failure to uh, exercise fiduciary responsibility, in the mm. end, the law is just worth nothing. This but is my own genuine observation. It's, 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 I mean, I, I think that's that's the problem with uh, the Public Finance Management Act. It's a very good piece of legislation. It's been around for more than 20 years. I think it was passed in 2000, 2001 or 2002, around then. So 20 odd years ago. Uh, implementation is very weak uh, and there's very little political will around it. And you can have all the reports you like from the Auditor General and the, Pub and the Public Accounts Committee in Parliament. But if there's very little enforcement, then um, there are no consequences. So there, you know, it goes to the point we're talking about because that all goes to accountability. And then, uh, you know, it makes, it undermines what is a very good piece of legislation was then not affecting them. Sure. Here's my last question, Peter. So in this space of uh, governance, accountability, transparency, it, you know, you have many entities. What do you think ought to be on these issues that are balanced between application of legal instruments as such as they are and, and the role of civil society uh, in, shall I say, creating an environment in which it becomes de facto an additional source of checks and balances? Uh, look, it's it, it, again a very good question. I mean, you, you have to have both. You have to have you have to have some sort of you need to have some, you know, you need to have the legal instruments to make this thing effective. But we just talked about the problems in South Africa, the Public Finance Management Act. You also have to have effective implementation. But civil society is a major player here because, you know, take the example with ESCOM in South Africa with the, the withdrawal of the notice. It's only because there was such an outcry in the media led by civil society, actually principally led by Kosatu, a key uh, member of the ANC governing alliance in, in, in South Africa, that that, uh, that the minister was embarrassed, I think, frankly, into withdrawing the notice. So it shows the pressure civil society can bring on government when it makes the wrong decisions. I'm not saying the government always government will always respond to those sorts of things, but one of the good things about South Africa is that it you know it has a very um, free media, very bright, vibrant media, uh, and the media is often very critical of the government and civil society in South Africa <laughs> has always been traditionally been very, very strong. And that's mm. that's very much a plus in, in, in the country. Yeah. Well you 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 remind me of course that your current head of state is a is a mind unionist. And so he is himself uh, a person who's rooted in uh civil society discourse. And so it's quite ironic that uh, this suggestion that 
Transnet and uh, Eskom might not disclose happens on his watch. But there you are, Peter. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. No doubt I'll be talking to you again. You're very welcome, Sheila. Great to speak to you again.